God traffics in the miraculous. God forgives sinners. That's what the miracle and the message of Acts chapter 3 will teach us this morning. And I've summarized it in our main idea, which is this, that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. The exhortation follows that of verse 19 of the chapter. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Work through the passage in two parts. We'll talk about the miracle and then the message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together. The privilege of gathering together as your people is one that we should not take lightly. Thank you that you have called us together in Christ. We ask that you would create among us a contagious fellowship that is filled with a focus on Jesus. Pray that you would mark us with the character of Jesus. Pray that you would put on our hearts and on our minds and in our thoughts the Lord Jesus. He is the center of Scripture. He's the King of the universe. Pray that He would be our hope and our stay. God, all of us have come in here this morning with different burdens, different distractions. We cast them upon you now, knowing that you have promised to those who have trusted in you, that when we cast our burdens upon you, we shall not be shaken. That you will sustain us. So we let go of all those things that we've been trying to sustain on our own. All those things that have stressed us out and left us feeling like we're just not enough. Thank you that they remind us that we're not enough, but Jesus is. Sustain us with your word this morning. Let your presence fall upon us. Let us hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the book of Acts, and we've summarized it this way. We say, in Acts, Jesus goes up, that is, he ascends to the throne, the Spirit comes down, that is, it falls upon and fills the uh, people of God, and then the church goes out. Jesus promised this would happen before he ascended to his throne in heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, uh, when my Spirit comes, you're going to have power, and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And what we are seeing as we come out of Acts chapter 2 and enter into chapter 3 is that that is happening. The Spirit has come, the people of God have been empowered, and they are witnessing to the glory of Jesus. They are calling people to repentance, and God is building his church. 
Jesus promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And in Acts, he is making good on that promise as he still does today. He's building his church. And now we come to chapter 3 where we read in verse 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple for a time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. That's what the ninth hour is, if you have a translation that says the ninth hour. They're going about their normal business. This is their regular, everyday routine. They're going about their prayers. They've done it a hundred times before. It's an ordinary day. And it's a day that God would do something extraordinary. Luke shifts the scene for us as we can picture Peter and John ascending the steps towards the temple and he puts the attention on another character. We read of him in verse 2. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. For this man, it's an ordinary day. We're told that he is lame. And so for the thousandth time, more than that, every day of his life, we learn for 40 years in chapter 4, verse 22, that he's been lame from birth. He's over 40 years old. And so on this day, it's an ordinary day. He, he wakes up and he rubs the sleep from his eyes and he knows I will not walk today. If there's been one constant in his life, it's that his body is broken. And in the first century, he would have been viewed as a drain on his family and on society. Someone who was helpless and hopeless and useless. Still, they found a way to make him a little bit useful to contribute to the family. Likely somebody in his family or a neighbor would take him and carry him physically each and every day, and they would place him before the beautiful gate each and every day. And each and every day, he would beg. There's such a stark contrast between the beautiful gate that welcomes worshipers into the the presence of God and the broken man. You see, the lame man would not have been permitted to enter beyond the beautiful gate because of the provisions of the temple. And it's, it's not because God doesn't love disabled people. He does. He makes provision for them throughout the scripture. God loves disabled people. He loves all people that have been made in his image, which is everyone. All life is valuable. He loves them. But the temple is meant to picture God's completeness, his perfection, his holiness. Nothing unclean can go in there. Nothing blemished can go in there. Nothing broken can go before the Lord. Because physical integrity was viewed as symbolic of moral integrity. Therefore, Priests and people like the sacrifices that were made in the temple needed to be blemishless, 
They needed to be perfect. They needed to be clean. They needed to be whole. And so the closest this man could get to the presence of God was in the court of the Gentiles, right in front of that beautiful gate which separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. And outside of this beautiful gate, he sat daily broken and begging. And on this day, he sees Peter and John. Verse 3, about to enter the temple, and he asked them for money. And Peter, along with John, looked straight at him. Now, you don't, maybe you encounter beggars, but, but I want to give you a picture here. Uh, think about it like if you've ever been to the department stores at Christmas time. Like, you know, you're making your way into uh, Temple Walmart or, or Temple Best Buy or Temple Target, whichever place you're going, and there's something that, that confronts you there during those winter months. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Da-ding, da-ding, da-ding. Those bell ringers. And they've got their little bucket, and they're staring you down, and they're, they're saying, you going to give me something here? And you, because you don't want to feel guilty, typically, I believe you're generous people, and you, know, you give to the bell ringers, I don't know. But if you're like me, you, you do this number, and you try to slide past. Or, or maybe all of a sudden, you've got a phone call that you just have to take. Or you, you look down at your phone, or you look for another entrance. I want to avoid this awkward passing by of that bell ringer. Ding, ding, ding. And what you, what you don't do is say, like, look at me. Look me in the eye. And, then, and that's exactly what, what Peter does here. This guy is ringing his bell. He's begging for alms. He's looking for money. And Peter says, look at us. The beggar turned to them, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, I don't have silver or gold. Imagine that. They're walking in. Ding, ding. Look at me, bell ringer. Silver or gold, I have none. Just keep strolling past. This isn't isn't what happens here. Peter doesn't, doesn't have any money. He says, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Wow. This is amazing. Forty years, he could not walk. He's, he's looking for some money. And Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And before he can even think, this guy is out of his mind, Peter interrupts his thought by grasping his hand and pulling him to his feet. And all at once he realized, my, my feet work. 
My ankles are strong. And immediately, praising God, he enters into that gate. Made whole. No longer broken. Beyond that gate, outside of which he had sat every day, begging. He is made whole and he leaps with joy, praising God. Now, this is probably a little undignified, right? People walk into the temple solemn. This guy is, is jumping. He's trying out his legs. He is filled with joy and wonder. Wouldn't you be? This is incredible. I imagine him like, like Tigger in Winnie the Pooh. A bounce, a bounce, a bounce, a bounce. Like he, he is filled with joy. He's praising God. Friends, we have a, a picture in this lame man of our own salvation. We all were outside of the presence of God, broken and helpless and hopeless. And Jesus Christ came to us and he took us by the hand and he raised us to our feet and made us whole, giving us faith, peace with God. And he brings us into the presence of God that we might praise Him and enjoy Him, delight in Him. I wonder, does your, do you have a faith that leaps? A faith that jumps? When was the last time you were really excited about the miracle of your own salvation? You really sat back and went... God, I can't believe that you've done this. You saved me. There was one constant in my life. I was a sinner and I was separated from you in rebellion. And you came to me in my affliction. And you didn't give me those things that I thought I needed, money or career or relationship or whatever it is. You gave me yourself. You gave me salvation. And I needed that more than I needed anything you are amazing. Do you have faith like that? Verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized. He was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. And so they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Scene shifts a little bit here in verse 11. They, they move to the porch of Solomon or Solomon's portico, Solomon's colonnade, big porch, kind of surrounds the temple. There's columns there. It's where the church used to meet early on. Verse 11, while he was holding on to Peter and John, I do love that line. Hold, like he's been healed, he can walk, and so he is clinging to Peter and John. Like, I'm not going to let these guys go. Maybe there's something going on here, and if they, I get too far away from them, I not, might not be able to walk again. Like, I'm, I'm hanging on to these guys. All the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. This is quite the spectacle. He is jumping and running and leaping. He is filled with the joy of salvation. And he was a fixture outside of that beautiful gate. Everybody knows him. They're like, that's, that's the guy that used to beg every day. And now he is, he is walking. This is incredible. 
What I want you to notice is that God never does a miracle merely to create a spectacle. Miracles happen in order to put the spotlight on Jesus. This spectacle in the temple is created so that Jesus can be magnified and made known. It's very similar to another miracle uh, that you probably know of. Mark chapter 2, it's a very famous story. Jesus is at Peter's house, he's, he's hanging out, he's teaching, and the crowds are pressed in, and there's no room. There's not even any standing room, and these four guys come with a man who is a paralytic. He can't walk, they've got him on his mat, they can't find a way in, and so they ascend, the, the houses used to have like stairs outside, they send the, the, the stairs, and they dig through the roof, and a little drop ceiling there. They, they, they drop this guy down in before Jesus because they're like, this Jesus guy's been rolling around. He's been healing people. He can heal this paralytic. He can heal his condition. So we're going to get him before Jesus. Paralytic I'm going to get before Jesus and I'm going to get my legs back. And they get him before Jesus in verse 5. And Jesus says, seeing their faith, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I gotta imagine at that point, paralytic sitting on his mat. Sins are forgiven. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's not why I'm here. Leg thing. I can't, we came for healing, not <laughs> my sins are forgiven. What are, you, what are you talking about? This is like asking for a PlayStation for Christmas and getting an ugly sweater. This is not. From their perspective, this is not going according to plan. But see, Jesus sees beyond what they think is their deepest need. And he gives them, what, gives them in what he really needs. His legs would have lasted for a lifetime. But the forgiveness of sin it would last for an eternity. Furthermore, this miracle that Jesus is performing, like all miracles, isn't merely about the miracle. It's about the miracle worker. It's about who Jesus is and his power. Because when he says, your sins are forgiven, well, he's, he's claiming to have the power to forgive sin. And the scribes that are there are keen to this. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves. And he said to them, I do love, like they didn't even say it out loud. And they're just thinking it. And Jesus is confronting them. He says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. Immediately the man got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. And as a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. See, the point of the miracle in Mark 
that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God? The point of the miracle in Mark is that Jesus is God. He forgives sin, that he has that kind of power. Likewise, the miracle here in Acts 3 is done in the name of Jesus. It's done to demonstrate that Jesus is still alive. That Jesus still has power to forgive sins. That Jesus is still ruling and reigning in the universe. It's pointed at revealing who Jesus is. The miracle always serves the message. The message is that you must put your faith in Jesus. And Peter wants to make this very, very clear. In verse 12, when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power and godliness? I just, I love how incredulous Peter is here. Like, if I'm in the crowd, I'm like, listen, Peter, this, this dude, he's been he's over 40 years, can't walk, and now he's walking. We're pretty impressed. And Peter's like, yes, but you're impressed with the wrong thing. You're impressed with me and John. We, we didn't do this. God did. This is, Peter's saying, it's all about Jesus. He says, in verse 6, we see that he healed the man in the name of Jesus. Verse 16, he says, the faith to heal the man came through Jesus. By faith, verse 16, in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given this perfect health, given him this perfect health in front of all of you. Peter is letting them know. All of this is about Jesus. And then he's going to come at them pretty hard here. Jesus, who was the most magnificent person who ever lived, the one that you killed, This miracle is to serve the message of salvation through Christ, the one that you put to death. He doesn't mince words. Look at at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Notice that word servant is why we read Isaiah 53 together earlier today. Peter's making a claim with that title. This is the suffering servant. The God of Abraham and Isaac and the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate. Though he had decided to release him, you denied the holy and righteous one, that's another title, and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the author or source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses. Then drop down to verse 17. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. Peter comes out and he says, You killed 
God's Messiah. You killed the servant of the Lord. You killed the holy and righteous one. You killed the source of life. And it's funny, I know you acted in ignorance. But notice, their ignorance doesn't excuse their sinfulness. Ignorance is no excuse. You know this from, from experience, right? Hypothetically, let's say you're headed down 151 at around 60 miles an hour. One of those spots where it's at around 45 speed limit wise. And you get pulled over. The officer comes up and you roll your window down or push it down with a button, probably automatic. You give him your license and your registration. And he says, you know, do you know how fast you were going? And you say, yeah, I was going about 60. And he says, like, you know what the speed limit is here? Officer, I have no idea. He says, 45. Well, I had no idea, so you can't write me a ticket. Ignorant. Had no idea. Didn't know. Is he going to, okay, well, you, you didn't know, so no ticket. I mean, maybe if you're a beautiful girl and you bat your eyes, I don't know. But if it's me, I'm going to take it there. I, as a driver of the car, should have recognized the speed limit signs and I should have gone the speed limit. I'm, I broke the law. Getting a ticket. Ignorance is no excuse. Likewise, the religious leaders and those who were responsible for putting Jesus to death, that they should have read the signs and the scriptures and recognized who he was. They are without excuse. They rejected him and put him to death in favor of a murderer. You guys know this story. It happens in Mark 15. It's a story of our good friend Jesus and Barabbas. Jesus has just been denied by Peter, handed over in ropes to Pilate. And Pilate has this custom of releasing one prisoner to the Jews every year at around Passover. And so he's doing this custom, and he basically says, do you want me to release Jesus to you? And this is what, this is what we read in verse 9. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? They shouted, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? They shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. I think one of the quick lessons here is that we need to be careful who we follow as leaders. Be careful who we follow as leaders. The religious leaders and the people turned over God's Messiah to be killed. Not every religious leader is trustworthy. 
Just because somebody calls themselves pastor or Christian or shows up in your Christian bookstore or on Christian TV or on Christian radio or a Christian website, it doesn't mean they're trustworthy. It doesn't mean they're a friend of Jesus. There are plenty of wolves in sheep's clothing ready to lead you away from the word of God into the worship of some kind of Jesus Jr. that looks like you do. Plenty of people ready to tell you what you want to hear. Plenty of others that want to take advantage of the people of God. Be careful who you follow. Be careful who you learn from. Test everything against the word of God revealed in Scripture. Be careful. These religious leaders were no friend of Jesus. When presented with a choice between the prince of life and an insurrectionist who committed murder, they said, kill the prince of life and give to us a plundering murderer. This is a heinous sin. One that is inexcusable. They should have been shouting, crown him! Crown him with many crowns! And instead, crucify him came from their lips. And friends, likewise, you and I, had we been there, would have been shouting, crucify him! Friends, every time we sin, Every time you choose to do what you want instead of what God has commanded, you shout in your heart of hearts once more, crucify him. He is no God of mine. This is why Martin Luther said, we all walk about with the nails of the cross in our pockets. Our sin put Jesus on the cross just as much as the nails in his hand. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. How deep the Father's love for us. How great God's wisdom in giving Christ to die for our sins and reconcile us to himself. Praise God, He is so wise. He planned to use our sin to bring about His glory. This is what Peter says in verse 18. In this way, God fulfilled what He had predicted through all the prophets, that His Messiah would suffer. 
Therefore repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of restoration, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among your brothers and sisters, you must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will become completely destroyed or cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have foretold of these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. God planned for this. God has kept his promises. He promised that he would bless all the families of the earth through the offspring of Abraham. That's offspring singular. That is, he would bless all the families of the earth through Jesus. He promised that a prophet like Moses would come and that all who would listen to his voice would have peace, freedom, joy, and that all who would reject his voice would be cut off from the people of God. It is, it is God's desire to bless you. And He blesses us by turning us from our evil ways. It is a blessing to pursue holiness. Holiness will bring you happiness. It might not seem like that at the time. I think we have this wrong idea of holiness as kind of and when you say the word, you think of like somebody in, in a really buttoned up suit, really cold room, not having any fun. But that's not the picture of holiness that the Bible gives us. Holiness is next to wholeness and peace and satisfaction. Holiness is a blessing from God. Sin is a curse. Sin, even though it might feel good for an evening, will destroy you in the morning. It is never a blessing to call what God calls sin good. It is never helpful for you to lie to someone about their sin. To tell somebody what God has called wickedness, but, but it's really not that wicked. Anytime you applaud or approve of sin, you yourself are sinning. When you applaud or approve of someone else's sin, you are not giving them a blessing. You're not calling them to a blessing. You are giving them over to a curse. There is blessing in turning from evil. When we turn from evil to Christ, we will find that we are blessed. Notice here in 
verse 26, it says that God is the one who is turning us from our evil ways. As you see there in verse 19, we are commanded to repent. Once again, we see Scripture holds these two ideas out and doesn't have a problem, doesn't flinch. In conversion, God's responsible for turning us. Then on the other hand, in conversion, you're responsible to turn to God. Scripture doesn't have a problem. Both are true. Friends, pray. If you are a Christian, praise God that He has turned your heart to Him. If you are not a Christian, pray that He would turn the hearts of those who don't know Him from their evil ways that they might enjoy the blessing of knowing Jesus. And there are tremendous blessings in knowing Jesus. Peter outlines three here. First in verse 19. He writes, Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. The word for wiped out here, it means blotted out or erased. And so uh, the picture that would have been in their minds at this time, uh, parchment used to be really expensive. And so uh, they would buy ink that would be acid-free that would just lay on top of the paper so that they could wet like a rag and come across and just blot up that ink, wipe it clean, start over. Maybe more contemporary image might be if you think of a dry erase board upon which all of your sins have to be a pretty big one. Bigger if you're someone like me or Dale. Right? All your sins are, are written on this big dry erase board and you're sitting there contemplating them, feeling the weight of guilt and shame, the inevitability of God's right judgment against your sin. And Jesus just comes along and erases them clean. I also get this image, I don't know why, it's because we're commercialized, I guess, of like a paper towel commercial. Right? You know what I'm talking about, like kid knocks something over, there's this big spill on the floor. And just with, with one paper towel, in the commercials anyway, they just, that mess is gone. Even the blemish, blemishes in the, in the floor are gone. This is, this is what Christ has done. He wipes away our sin, and he's able to wipe away our sin because he's taken, like a paper towel, our sin onto himself. He was crushed for our sin, for our iniquity. The punishment that brings us peace with God when we put our faith in him, the punishment that was due us was laid on Jesus' shoulders. He's the servant of God. Wiped clean. This is an answer to the prayer of David. Psalm 51, he says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out all my guilt. This is an answer to David's prayer.
I'm not calling any of you old. Don't, it's nothing for, but how many of you, I think there has to be a couple of you, I should have done some math. How many of you remember where you were when John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated? A few. Remember exactly where you were and what you were doing. The big moment in our nation's history. Now, how many of you instantaneously can call to mind the name of the other gentleman who was shot by the same assassin on that same day? Usually not many. Even now, when we learn about it in civics, Officer Tippett is often unnamed. Why is that? Homicide is a crime. The murder of a police officer is wicked. But it's not as significant as the assassination of a president. Why? Because the crime escalates in significance the higher the office of the victim. The crime escalates in significance the higher the office of the victim. There is no crime more significant than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Peter is holding out the offer of forgiveness to people that he credits with killing Jesus. So hear me here. If God can forgive David, who was a rapist and a murderer, If God can forgive those who killed Jesus, then he can handle your sin. So go ahead. Bring your very worst sin. Turn to him. Bring your very worst sin to him. And he will bring to you his very best grace. There is Power in the blood of Jesus. And it is wonder-working power that wipes away the sin of all who trust in Him. Turn to Jesus in faith. Have your sin wiped out. Second blessing, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The idea here is relief, a a freedom, a a peace. Have you ever, um, like me, you've had a a dream before wherein people that you love die? And through the night, you're kind of filled with, with dread and angst and terror. And something happens. You wake up. And what do you do in the morning after a dream like that? <sighs> that sigh of relief. If you're like me, you seek out your loved ones and you hug them a little tighter. Somehow enjoy them a little bit more since it felt like they were lost. There's a, a peace 
and a happiness, a contentment that comes over you. Likewise here, there's this idea of being free from the terror of our sin. From the dread of facing God's judgment. There, there's relief and there's, there's peace with God. There's pleasure in the presence of God. It's available to all who will turn to Jesus in faith. Seasons of refreshing may come. That he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of restoration of all things. And so the third blessing is of hope. Hope. Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's ruling in power. He's forgiving sins. And one day he's going to return to end all sin. This little miracle in Acts chapter 3 reminds us of that. That Jesus is returning to make all things new. It calls our attention to that final day foresaw by Isaiah in chapter 35, wherein he writes, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Acts chapter 3 and the healing of this lame man is giving us a little preview of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to make all things new. When you turn to him in faith, you get to have that certain hope of a future that is secure. Of a life together with God. When you turn to faith in Jesus, you have your sins wiped out, the refreshment, and the pleasure of knowing God, the hope of life together with God. Jesus has the power to do that. He has the power to change your life just like he changed the life of this lame man. The question is, will you turn to him in faith? I pray that you would. That you would repent and turn back so that your sin might be wiped out. Jesus will wipe away your sin right now. And he will wipe away your tears later. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that it is the power of your word that creates and sustains your people. Pray that you would change us and sustain us once more again this morning. Pray that you would be forming Christ in us. That you would refine us like a fire. That you would send things into our lives that are really hard. So that we might become more like Jesus. God, do do the miraculous in us. We come to you with nothing as broken people, knowing that you can make us whole. 
We pray that you would not only make us whole, we thank you that you've made us whole, but we ask that you would make us, make us holy. Make us holy so that we might be happy and satisfied in Christ alone. There's no satisfaction anywhere else. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.